Hey everyone, this is Zed Ninja, and you are now listening to the Storm Connect podcast published by the Sigil Arts Network. I talk about gaming topics and anime series of my own interest like Ruby, Hunter x Hunter, Persona 5 Royal, Final Fantasy 7 Remake, and so on and forward. The goal I aim to accomplish on every episode is to provide insights on these subjects that are usually overlooked, to spread awareness, and learn more. Today is a momentous day because it is finally that time of the year again where the new Ruby volume has premiered and it is time we talk about the episodes and freak the fuck out as to what is happening, who is dying, who is winning, who is looting, who is losing, sorry, who has the relics and all that shit for the next 14 weeks. So we're, yeah, here we are back in this wild roller coaster emotional ride. Now, if you are a listener, if you are a new listener and still clueless as to what I am talking about, Ruby is a Rooster Teeth original animated series that consists of anime characteristics where four girls, Ruby, Weiss, Blake, Yang, and a few other traveler friends went from training to become huntsmen and huntresses to saving the world as they fight off against the creatures of Grimm. So if you are not caught up with the events of Ruby's volume one through seven and would not want to be spoiled, I suggest you catch up now and watch the volume eight premiere episode and come back to this podcast episode here after you do all that. I also would like to apologize that I did not upload yesterday because I was seriously on the grind and my eyes, like, you know, my dead ass eyes were trying to cop for a PS5. And, you know, I am happy to say with all of my struggles and with my endless of sleep, I have finally copped the PS5. And here I am, still have not slept yet after work, after for the PS5 hunting, here I am recording this podcast a day late. So excuse me, but hello. Hi, everyone. I hope you are all well today. But yeah, uh, Ruby Volume A premiere. Yeah, let's just get right back into it and talk about this amazing. <laughs> this we, we got a lot to talk about today. So let's just jump right into it. So I've been having concerns as to how they were going to open up the volume at the right beginning, especially the fact that, like, you know, technically this volume is, I guess you could say this is considered to be volume seven, part two, essentially. But no, that's actually not the case. At the very beginning of the first 10 seconds of the premiere, we see a girl scrubbing the floor. We don't know, we don't know who it is, but after the 10 seconds, we actually see a scene with Neo and Cinder, and with that scrub rhythm, it looks like this could actually lead to a bit of a backstory of Cinder. We might actually get to see much more of her motives as to why, like, why she is the way that she is, and like, you know, what made her turn this way after meeting Salem. So, and obviously with like, with that type of backstory flashback that we saw, it looks like it's pointing towards the direction of the Cinderella story. But I'm very curious as to how they're going to go creative freedom and go wild for Cinder's character as I believe it's extremely overdue, especially the fact that she's been around since like the beginning of the series, but anywho. So there wasn't like anything like dialogue crazy or anything like that though, it just kind of like, you know, points to the direction of that, which you know, if that truly was Cinder, damn, she looks totally different from back then to how she is now. That's, that, that's a complete different type of redesign, holy shit. So, Neo and Cinder, they basically successfully capture the Relic of Knowledge. Well, mostly Neo. <laughs> and uh, when they saw the giant whale grim, Cinder did not seem at all surprised like that Salem was coming. Or like, you know, she knew that like Salem was there. So, you know, she was like, yeah, no, go there, go there. And it's like, oh, 
Uh, it, it feels like that you knew, but then again, like, you know, we don't exactly know the implication as, like, the whole timeline changing up and such, though. But that was really interesting, the fact that, like, you know, how things are escalating so quick. And now that Neo basically entered into Salem's territory, she's now, I guess you could say, part of the inner circle now, since Sitter just brought her into this fuckery of a mess, when Neo didn't want to do with any of it, she just wanted revenge for Roman Torchwick. What I love about this part specifically, is that when Cinder took the credit for capturing the Relic of Knowledge from Ironwood, even though she was supposed to have that done, secured and delivered to Salem after the attack on Haven, you know, here we are a couple volumes later, she finally was able to, but even though we all know who actually did the work here, what's hilarious is the fact that the moment that she did that, Neo, she was kind of a little bit like tensed up in the situation, especially for like meeting somebody that's about to fucking end humanity. Neo just stopped giving a fuck. She was just like, oh hell no, bitch. Oh, I know you are not doing this right here, right now. Like she did not care any of her surroundings and she was just not having that shit. She didn't even kneel towards to Salem in any way, shape, or form, or like show type of respect to her, even though like now she knows of who Salem is. She just did not give a fuck. Like, you know, yeah, she was a little bit tensed up though, but like, you know, like I said, at that moment, like, she just stopped giving a fuck. She's like, oh, all right, bitch, since you want to play like that, like, all right, we could do this. Sure, just wait. At least that's like the impression that I'm under right now for Neo, because I feel like, because she is there to get what she wants, and obviously, as what's been clearly expressed for the past couple volumes she does not like cinder even after like working with her and trying to be like professional as possible she just cannot take some of her shit because like now that she went to a whole ass journey like you know of how roman roman treated her with respect and always praised her for the works that she has done as to working with roman and you know working with salem she she took the credit she always mistreated her so badly and you know she doesn't at least give her some type of decency of respect Cinder views Neo as a valuable asset in her own words, but like only just as an asset rather than like, you know, I mean, you need people to help you accomplish your goal. So like the most that you could do is at least give her that type of respect. But yeah, no, she's not even doing that. And I think that like it's really testing Neo's patience. Cause like even when Cinder and Neo fought, like without Cinder like trying to cause a fucking fest without using the maiden powers, like Neo put up with a fucking good of a fight. And pretty much, like, here we are with, basically, like, with that first episode, like, I feel like there's going to be a lot of focus in, in terms of the antagonist. I feel like there will be a lot of focus with Cinder and Neo for this volume. As mentioned before, Neo becomes more heavily annoyed and disgusted with Cinder's actions and just the way that she's been speaking about and to Neo. So I feel like once, because Cinder is really pushing it, and, you know, it might come to the point to, like, especially after what was said in the first episode, I feel like even though, like, yes, she is after for going against Ruby, I feel like she kind of wants to have a little round two with Cinder or catch her at the right moment because of this entire disrespect and such. I mean, hey, I don't blame her. Like, this, my sticking around with a journey with someone that I tried to kill, but I'm now trying to work with, but she can't even give me that type of decency of respect tricked me to saying that Ruby killed her rather than, you know, in a way it is actually Cinder's fault and, you know, she kind of did give her that respect just for her to cooperate and now just completely dropped it. Oh yeah, I definitely would want to be that petty as fuck to where she suffers. <laughs> so I definitely don't blame Neo for that. And I'm going to get a little bit more into that, but 
I'm going to talk about that at pretty much near to the end of the podcast because, I mean, you'll, you'll see as to why I'll say this. So let's move on forward as to how the episode progresses. So even though Salem and literally the family, I fucking knew that she took her house, by the way. I called this shit like several months ago, actually to like pretty much when I said at the end of the goddamn volume, I said that she literally brought her house and look what the fuck she did. She brought her throne. She got she treated herself with like new a new dress from Victoria's Secrets and stuff like that. And she was nice enough to actually give the kids the luxury to, you know, buy some new clothes for themselves and stuff and to have new drip and <laughs> yeah no that she actually brought her house on top of a fucking whale or inside of the fucking whale I, either way she fucking brought her house but i'm mentioning this because that her fucking whale could eat up the goddamn entire kingdom but yet she's kind of just now sitting there so i get i mean like i get that they were trying to like discuss their next move and such though but like you know They're pretty much sitting there as they let their grand forces attack on the kingdom. So I guess like, you know, obviously since they need to get the relic of creation, they got to play this smart in some way, even though like literally like right now, like it's not even like the worst of it. And yet like she could go on a full assault scaled attack on them, but it looks like it's not exactly just as that as far as I'm seeing from the first episode. I could be wrong from what I'm saying this though. But I'm really curious as to how she tactfully plans to capture the Relic of Creation. And as to what she mentioned later to the episode, she is also demanding for Oscar Pine's presence. Since, basically, he's also Ospin. But we'll get to that a little bit later. So, as I mentioned earlier, speaking of the kids, uh, we see that Hazel returns. And we also see Emerald and Mercury. And of course, they also, like I said, they got their fits. You know, mom decided to treat the kids uh, some nice things. Because it's like, ah, fuck it, why not? We're going to the Cold Kingdom anyways. So, So there was not really much to really mention. Except for, like, you know, again, with their new fits and such. And, like, you know, new type of style. Mercury, very good style. Emerald, it's gonna take a little bit of time for me to get used to, though. But, like, not bad. Hazel... What did they do with his design? I really much prefer of his Mistral design, but this design, it's... <laughs> it looks like he almost got a complete redesign. Like, I had to, like, take a second to, like, relook at him again to see that if it was actually Hazel or not. Like, it, that's how much of a difference it was, though. But, again, I, I don't know. Like, I was just like, what the, what the fuck? When did this happen? Wow. <laughs> So now that like pretty much almost everybody is back together, there might be some type of renew approach of the focus of all these uh, antagonists, which I kind of hope so, because like you know we got a little bit to know of Tyrion Kalos. Uh, we already know much about with Hazel, but like again, like they have not done much with Hazel because of the lack of screen time that he has. So I wonder like now that Cinder has you know reunited with everybody else, you know, same with Emerald and Mercury and such. I wonder as to how exactly this is going to go. We have 14 chapters, so there could be a lot of things that could happen within those episodes, or the chapters, I should say, and bring in a lot of new depth as to basically the new motivations as to what everybody wants, and, you know, the restrictions that Salem is putting, maybe, because, like, you know, again, like, the war has just begun. Now, let's talk about Team Ruby, since that's what it pans to next. So, again, this volume was supposed to take place immediately after Volume 7 since we're now, like, in the middle of the beginning of the war. So, what I found really interesting was the fact that Team Ruby, they just picked up Oscar, which, you know, they were able to locate him pretty quickly in the slums. 
And yeah, no, they seem to have a hideout already that fast, especially that they were trying to get away from Atlas. We don't know exactly as to how that happened, but I, I guess they just found their way to make their way to the Happy Huntresses. I, I don't know. They grabbed Oscar and everyone is now back together except for Crow and Robin as to we already know the reasons as to why. So basically at this point, this is pretty much the reason as to why I titled the episode the way that I did today. Anxieties of the divisions, that's where it's going to transpire from here because there is so much anxiety and tension and so much like chaotic shit that is happening in volume eight. Well, from volume seven essentially, but this scene already deepens the anxiety, the feeling, and you know, the negative emotions even more. So after getting the rundown with Joanna and the rest of the team, the teammates pretty much have a moment of themselves away from Joanna just to basically like plan out exactly as to what they're going to do and their ways to save the Atlas and Mantle. So this is very interesting that we see Yang actually taking a stand against Ruby because her plan is that she wants to get Amity up and running so she can spread the message across the world of Remnant that Salem is pretty much an existence that is trying to end humanity while Yang is taking the stance of saving Mantle and doing what they can for Atlas and Atlas only. So for pretty much as to what transpired this and like you know as to what everyone's thinking what the most logical decision to do uh, Yang mentions that they did say that they were going to follow Ruby's lead in Volume 7, but as it turns out, that did not exactly go well. And you know what? I want to cut in the point right here before I kind of progress on to the most interesting points of this uh, segment as well. Can you guys actually sincerely sit here with me? And tell me, like, when was the last moment that we actually had a significant character interaction between the two sisters, Ruby and Yang? Because if you want my personal take on it, I'd say volume five for like at one part, that's it. And even if you go with the entirety of the show, like there's not much going on with Ruby and Yang. Pretty much like we see like Ruby trying to interact more with Weiss and you know Yang trying to interact more with Blake and such. It's really weird as to how they do their character developments and their growth with one another. And you know, you think that it would be very important for the two sisters that grew up with each other. But you know, for some reason it just feels like they just kind of drift apart. I'm not saying that like, you know, they need to have like some type of, you know, thing going on all the time between the two. Even though they kind of have been achieving that with Blake and Yang. Um, but, like, the two sisters, Ruby and Yang, like, you know, Yang is the older sister for Ruby, and, you know, she fucking protects her with her goddamn life. And another point, about questioning Ruby's leadership. Of all characters, I'm actually really glad Yang is the one that takes the stance against Ruby, because I do have to agree with her, like, Ruby's leadership skills for Volume 7 was poor as hell. There are... A good amount of failures that Ruby did not exactly execute right for Volume 7, which, you know, that's another conversation for another day, though. But, it, you know, I, I kind of made some of my points as to what happened in Volume 7 for some decisions that they made that I kind of, like, you know, had a question about. Like, even we saw that in Volume 7, Yang pretty much was like, I trust her, but I don't think exactly this sh should have happened. And, you know, now that they're in this shitty situation, like, you know, again... Yang is really not a fund of as to what has happened, and 
she's not exactly just going by the flow and such because this is a serious issue so yeah like you know there has to be some type of goal that could be achieved rather than just like you know everyone kind of blindly following ruby so the difference of opinions begins here Blake and Nora wants to join in with Ruby to get Amity Tower up and running, while Penny basically will be a huge assistance of that, and Weiss to some degree as well, which it would be smart if she actually goes back to Atlas with them, while Yang and Ren do what they can for Mantle and the Kingdom of Atlas. Oscar and Jean kind of tag along with those two at that point as well. And of course, Ruby's all about like, no, we need to stick together, we need to stick together. And it's just like, I mean, again, Ruby, your, <laughs> your lack of experience is really showing here because I mean, again, like Oscar, he made the great point. Like, you know, they can still be united. They could just work on separate goals only. And actually it would be better that way instead of just like everyone together focusing on one goal while the other one is lacking. Their situation is very delicate, so it is imperative that they have to be on the same page, but even though if they can't at their most critical state of the situation, it's best that they do work on these goals separately, but they can still achieve it at the same time as well for a greater effect. But because of the strong opposition with one another, it kind of puts a dreadful thought into their minds. It's like, are we really united? Are we actually going to turn against one another? Because there are... They're at odds with each other at the same time as well, so like, again, even though they're not exactly in huge agreement here, like, as long as that they can still get to the same result at the end of the day, and again, for greater effect as well, this is actually a much better approach. I thought this was going to be like, you know, a split off TV as to what they agreed upon though, but I like this direction as to like, oh, we're not exactly on the same page here, like, what am I thinking is such like, what, why? Why is she doing this? Why is he doing this and such? And it's like so much to really think about. But I mean, again, at least they can come to the compromise to where the groups are divided, but they can still work as their unified team. So they're really on a tight leash. It's it's pretty much a do or die situation. So whatever happens, <laughs> ultimately, which I mean, I'm going to transition to the next point. Ironwood does have a point. Everything that's going to happen at Atlas is going to fall onto Ruby's hands. So before I actually go full in depth with Ironwood and his Atlas Elites, let me talk about these two characters specifically, Penny Paladina and Oscar Pines. So I'll go with Penny here since I have a little bit more shorter thoughts for her rather than I have with Oscar. So Penny, right? She is the new Winter Maiden and of course I will be surprised if she doesn't have much of a spotlight for Volume A because she is now important for this volume. Very, very important. Penny didn't really have much to say for this episode, but those few words that she said alone with the episode were just enough. She is very determined to save Atlas, but in the way of what Team Ruby is doing and the way of how determined she is. The, the look and how she conveyed her emotion, even though she's a robot maiden, she conveyed her emotion as to like, yo, I'm going to do it. This is what I'm doing. This is what I believe in. I'm going to follow through with this. I'm the fucking new Winter Maiden, and here we go. Obviously, she didn't say all of that, though, but that, the way of how she was willing to volunteer, it was not just like, oh, yeah, no, like, you know, let me help you and such. Like, no, she was just like, I'm going to fucking help you guys. Like, it's my turn. Like, wow, that was powerful. And, you know, shout out to the voice actor, too. Like, she's doing an amazing job with Penny. Taylor McNee, you are doing justice as always. 
now that the previous Winter Maiden pretty much became a part of Penny, because now she's the new Winter Maiden, like, wow, she's more human than ever. Like, holy shit. Fucking Penny's dad should be proud. I just really hope that they don't pull a Volume 3 and kill her off or her dad. I mean, obviously it didn't happen in Volume 3, but still, I hope Pietro does not die in this volume, but those death flags are collecting and it is scaring me so much. And they just brought back Penny and she is tapping into a bigger potential than ever before and we all thought that that was not going to happen, but here we are. And now she's the Winter Maiden? <sighs> If they just kill her off just to end this goddamn fuckery wild ride of the Atlesian arc, I'm done. I will actually be done. I don't, I do not want any more injustices for Penny. She has one amazing justice, and that's her becoming the Winter Maiden. And no, no, please, please don't do this. But because of this amazing development Penny has had from the very beginning of the series and what she had in Volume 7, I feel like she's going to have another huge leap again for Volume 8. And now moving on to Oscar Pines. So because that Salem is here, obviously there's going to be some amount of focus for Oscar as well. Uh, I see that he is a lot more firm than ever, especially the fact that like at that moment of the scene, uh, Osman was just like, you're not gonna tell him about us, and you know, he's like, yeah, no, you and I are not done talking yet. I just wonder as to, like, what the conversation transpired, because, you know, of how Volume 7 ended, he just wanted to know how to save Atlas, but... <laughs> I feel like there's a lot more to the story as to what's being presented here. They made some type of progress with him in Volume 7, so I just hope they can keep up with that consistency and actually a much more stabilized consistency for Volume 8 this time, especially the fact that Salem's here. Yeah, no, it's inevitable at this point. And now that Ospin has returned, I really wonder as to what his thoughts are and exactly to what role he is going to play for this volume. The chances of Oscar slash Ospin meeting Salem is high, so I do have the hunch that it could be this volume. I could be wrong, but it could be this volume that Oscar Pines actually finally emerges with Ospin's soul. But that could also be too early to call. But because of how firm he was of keeping that quiet, I wonder why he's taking inspiration from Ruby to make it that decision of keeping this whole Ospin thing a secret for right now. And when they find out what happened, who knows, this might just widen the divide between the team right now. And unfortunately, from Jean's bitching in Volume 6, Oscar will be proving his point as to like, did you already know about this or what the fuck was that? I have my gripes with Oscar, but I just hope that this would turn out for the better because it looks like there seems to be a stronger definitive direction that he could go to for this volume. So we'll see how that goes. Now let's make this transition to Ironwood and his Atlas Elites. What I find funny is the fact that on the first episode, we see the updated list of the fugitives that need to be arrested. And we see Penny and the grandparents there, obviously. So what's even funnier is the fact that in later of the chapter, Ironwood calls Penny and, you know, he gives this sweet, soft tone voice of his like, oh, yeah, I'm so worried about you and stuff like that. Could you please come over here so we can find a way to beat Salem together and such? Like, <laughs> like, boy, you literally just put her and her father on the goddamn arrest list 
and you're gonna sweet talk your way to her as if like you know you just did not do that and especially as to the fucker that you're pulling right now like <laughs> excuse you what type of manipulation tactic is this Man's really was gonna arrest them, but then say that like, oh yeah, let's have you picked up. Like, bitch, like, you know she can fucking fly herself. Like, shut up. Like, that was just poor acting right there. I'm not talking about like the voice actor or anything like that though. I'm just talking about for Ironwood's bullshit. Like, you know, you're just gonna come up with that shit and then you're just gonna like, you know, come up so softly to her. And I just love that he just lost his shit when Ruby was questioning him about Mantle again. Like, dude, like, you just lost your heart, and now you're losing your fucking mind, too. Like, you can't even think logically for two seconds, especially for the shit that you just tried to pull in that first chapter and the finale of Volume 7? Come on, Ironwood. But wait, we're not done yet, because now we actually get to see him with the Aesops and Winter. I didn't think this part would be sped up, like, to the fact that they're already together. Like, they are now aware that Clover has passed. And, you know, Winter has already been escorted to basically an emergency room. So, for some reason, like, there is still some type of heart that Ironwood just shows, but then all of a sudden he just switches. The councilman comes through, and of course, like, they're questioning Ironwood's irrational decisions, especially for, like, going behind his back and finally declaring martial law, now it's official. And just, all of a sudden, from that bitchy, he didn't have to! This man literally walks out of the emergency room and in front of everybody, Winter and the Aesops and Councilwoman Camilla, he just shoots Councilman Slate for no reason. This Tin Man right here is not becoming just any other Tin Man. He is specifically becoming a special type of Tin Man that he does not want to be and it's showing the similar traits towards the Salem. Like, dude, just because there's going to be many casualties does not mean that you have to add another. Like, damn, now you're a criminal at this point. Like, he didn't even think twice on it. He just shot him up like it was nothing, so casually. And now Councilwoman Camilla, she just feels like she's now being held as hostage. Like, fuck, not even the fucking Aesops or Winter were expecting that. Like, you're gonna protect your own kingdom by shooting your own people that disagrees with you? Fuck. Like, don't misunderstand me, like, to a huge extent, like, I can understand for where Ironwood is coming from, and, you know, his prone to overreact, it's becoming more justified, but this is now getting out of control. I get that his paranoia is besting him, and the fact that, like, people are only proving his point as to the decisions that he wanted to make, but no, like, he, he's just tired of it, though, but he didn't have to kill him. He is totally going to be unrecognizable by the end of this volume, I just know it. And that makes me wonder, like, especially for the shit that he is pulling, I wonder if the Aesops and Winter are going to truly still continue to follow James Ironwood's control. Like, even Winter, like, she is starting to look so unhappy with herself as to what's happening. And speaking of her, I worry of her fate. I really worry of what's going to happen with Winter, especially for, like, how Volume 7 ended and what her mindset is at. I truly fear as to what her fate will be in Volume 8. Like, dude, like, seeing her in the goddamn hospital bed and shit, she got beat up pretty bad. I am truly hoping that Winter does not actually sacrifice herself for Ironwood's cause because it is not gonna go anywhere good, that's for sure. It's already bad enough that Winter literally, like, does not have much more of her ties or her family anymore. And, like, Winter is, like, the last one. And, I, you know, that's another story that I have for Y7 another day. But, anyways. 
And finally, the last part of the episode, Salem is now in demand of Ozpin, a.k.a. slash Oscar as well. So I wonder of how much she is going to try to have control over the relic of knowledge because Jane can only answer three questions. Two questions have been answered and there's only one left. So I don't know if what Salem could do, it could be so much above in power that she'd be forced to have more questions or she can't there not there's not even much that she could even do to you know try to grab more because again there's only one question left for humanity at least for another 100 years but whew, that boy is toast so if it's proven that she can only get one question and not more than that due to her power i wonder of what question that will be because i have a feeling that it might not even be about the relics or even the maidens I realize I may not have some proof of that, though, but she seems pretty knowledgeable as to how the, you know, the schools work and such. Maybe the only thing that I could imagine is the Relic of Choice, where the location of that is. But I feel like it has to be something even more grand that she wants to lay out some type of big, well, I mean, again, whatever benefits her for crushing humanity. That really concludes the episode overall, because that's, it was pretty much, like, one of their more shorter premieres of how they open up the volume. So it was like roughly about 18 minutes rather than their usual above 20. So I will have to say, I am actually very impressed. This might be one of their most stronger openings to the volume. Their exposition and their buildup as to basically like what to really expect of this volume, it was actually not that bad. I have to say it's probably my top three favorites as to how they open up a volume. They're not usually, they don't usually do a good job at it though, but they really did a very good job this time for the pacing and as to like, you know, the main goals of each party. Assuming that the chapters won't suffer of a lot of short inconsistencies, this actually might be a very good volume. But because of the circumstances, I'm going to keep my expectations of low. I don't know about the rest of you, but that's how I personally view about it. But I have some type of good feeling about this volume, especially the fact that we have 14 chapters. But again, I just hope this doesn't give them the excuse that because that we have greater numbers in the volume, it doesn't equate to basically cutting the episodes a little bit more shorter. And now the last part that I really want to talk about in this podcast episode today is the new opening. Oh my god. Bless Casey Lee Williams once again. She outdid herself as always. This opening... I vibe with this a lot more now. It took me some time to get used to the previous opening, Trust Love, just a little bit. Uh, for some reason, like, something was, like, not hitting. But, like, on its own, like, it's still good, though. But this one? Oh, it hit perfectly for me. It actually might be part of my top three favorite openings of Ruby. However, for one of the scenes, when I spoke to my Discord server and pretty much among with my friends that are into Ruby... They love the visuals of opening eight, which honestly, like, I have to agree, like, volume eight's opening, it has to be one of the most best ever visuals that Rooster Teeth has ever produced for Ruby. In terms of the song, some people are kind of like, you know, they said that they're going to have to take time to get used to it, even though, like, I think, like, I'm par- probably one of the very small few that's gotten, like, you know, onto the vibe with it immediately. They truly achieved of putting this show into, like, the most anime look ever. And I love it. But I actually want to really get into the death of the opening, so let's talk about that. 
I want to pick out some interesting highlights of the opening that I want to mention here. So starting first with Ironwood. I know I'm kind of like going a little bit ahead of this though, but we see Ironwood, like the Tin Man, we see the Kingdom of Atlas inside of him and later it just fades into a burning destroyed Atlas. So I think this might be some type of foreshadowing of Ironwood might actually be responsible to leading Atlas's destruction. Because he says that he's doing everything that he can to protect the kingdom, but he might actually do the opposite of that and it will actually be on his head for it. At least that's kind of the gist that I'm getting at here. Next, we're gonna have, again, like this pretty much puts more as to why I titled the episode of this podcast episode today with this title, Anxieties of Divisions Continues. So we see the characters later. We see Ren and Nora. They have their own differences of opinion as to how they want to go about saving Mantle or the world of Remnant, all those things involving with the Salem fiasco. And we also see the divide between Winter and Weiss. It, just seeing those two, well, actually, all those four together, it just looks so painful. And if you want my own personal take as to how I'm conveying those two segments, Nor Ren and Nora and Weiss and Winter, I'm kind of... I'm kind of seeing some death flies kind of attracting here, not going to lie. I'm not going to mention as to who, but I think you could guess, maybe. Just in your own way, you can make your hypothesis as to who I'm thinking of and the couple characters that I'm mentioning. But anywho, so next it transitions to Whitley and Willow. I didn't think we'd see them again for the opening, but I mean, again, like, because they're in the Kingdom of Atlas, obviously, like, we probably are going to see them at some point. Although, I don't know if they're going to have much screen time, maybe because of a fucking war. I mean, hey, I could be wrong. I mean, hey, they could be the ones to help out Wise to get back to the Kingdom of Atlas. But, I mean, we'll just have to see how that goes. But, I really wonder as to what those two are thinking about right now. Like, you know, they're basically the head of the household just got sent to jail. And now the war has just begun the night that he got arrested. So, ooh, man, they have a lot to take in from that. Then next, it transitions to Salem and Ironwood on the chessboard, and we see Salem's forces on the chessboard, like, literally destroying Ironwood's, like, chess pieces. And we see Ironwood all alone. And, of course, I feel like, what I, of course, whatever Ironwood is gonna do for this volume, like, nobody will be by his side. And I think he probably will be the one to suffer the most out of all the characters that might potentially suffer in this volume. Next, we see Watts. Pietro Paladina and Penny Paladina. So it's clear to me that Watts is most likely probably going to break out of jail somehow. And I think there will actually be a greed battle between him and Pietro. Although I kind of want to mention this part real quick, the Paladina specifically. As you can see, the reflections of the like, you know, of themselves. We can see that like they're doing something else rather than like mimicking exactly as to, you know when you actually have a reflection. So, Pietro's reflection, we see that he's looking over towards the Penny with concern, and by the time that it already pans over to Penny, the mirror cracks. And I truly hope this does not indicate that Pietro might actually die in this volume. Again, more death flags are being collected here. I don't like this. This is going to be so much anxiety already. Then after that, like, eventually, like, the team gathers up. We see Team Ruby and Penny. However, I want to mention this point here real quick. And this might be a little bit far-fetched, so maybe take my 
punch a little bit with a grain of salt though but again there's a possibility for everything so theory time real quick so when the team assembles like penny is already there but we see another shot of them. We see the Kingdom of Atlas. We see the Amity Tower. And we also see Salem's giant fucking whale with her goddamn grand family. And throughout that shot, Penny for some reason flies to the sky and she's facing towards the team rather than standing right next to them as to how she usually is just to show that she's standing with them. I don't know why they did that. Just seeing that, because from what it looks like, like they're facing off against like the concerns over everything, facing off against Salem's forces, protecting the kingdom of Atlas, but also dealing with Iron's bullshit, trying to get to the Amity Tower, and then Penny's for some reason is part of the background with it, as she's a concern as the Winter Maiden. So here's what I'm thinking. Like I mentioned earlier, we see that Dr. Watts, he's definitely going to have some type of play into this volume, especially if he has found a way to break out of jail. And that's just assuming that he does. So if Dr. Watts gets himself out of jail, meets with Salem or at least one of their forces, and if he finds out that Penny is the new maiden, the winter maiden, essentially... I personally feel like this might actually be the volume where the peak of his intelligence will actually shine and his dignity as well. Because think about it, okay? He has a strong distaste towards the Pietro Palandina and he was never appreciated for his geniusness. So, assuming that he did help of creating the Penny Project, I feel like he has some idea of how Penny works, especially to what he did in Volume 7. I don't doubt that he is going to try to take control of Penny. And somehow he will be able to turn her into a puppet. The perfect Winter Maiden puppet. And only by then it will be very, it'd be very simple for Watts to basically be the winning team for Salem's forces because they are trying to get the Relic of Creation. And if he succeeds on that shit, whew, Team Ruby is fucked. Because there's two maidens on the loose. Like, again, hypothetically speaking, there's two maidens on the loose that are going up against Team Ruby and pretty much of the Kingdom of Atlas. One is already enough. Two is literally a goddamn chaotic storm. And here, let's put it this way as well. Even though, like, Salem kind of gave the command to Cinder, I'm like, uh, I know you want the other Maiden's power, but, like, I didn't give you that command to do so. I still feel like Cinder was still trying to pull that shit. And obviously, Dr. Waz does not like Cinder. So let's say if any weird unforeseen circumstance we see Cinder fight with Penny or some sort of, like, some way to where, like, some unexpected event were to happen, okay? Let's say that, you know, again... Watts already has Penny under his control as the new perfect robotic Winter Maiden. If Cinder were to die, it won't have that much an effect towards the team because, again, they have another Maiden under their custody. And guess what? If Dr. Watts can do this right, he could also have his robotic goddamn Maiden take Cinder's Maiden powers. And guess what? Penny is the fall and the winter maiden from there. And again, there will be no point for Cinder to be in the show anymore. And here's a rule that we usually keep in anime. Whenever like we're like so far into the show and we see a random flashback of a character's backstory, 
chances are they're probably going to die in this volume. Not guaranteed, but it's highly likely. So either way, this is a really, really critical situation, and they better not fucking do anything to Penny. I'm tired of this. I see Penny is really focused into this volume's opening, and I don't like what's going to happen. I'm so scared. Please do not make this baby girl go through some pain. I will actually fight you, Rooster T. <laughs> So, yeah, that's my little theory that I have there. Next, we have pretty much the team, like, they're fighting off the creatures of Grimm. But then, fucking Cinder decided to pull a Dio out of nowhere and, you know, call out the Zawaldo technique or whatever it's called from JoJo's Bizarre's Adventure. She's just literally just walking, like, as if nothing is happening. Like, with that, all that confidence is thinking she's hot shit and she's the best out of them all. And from there, we only see two people that have ties with her, and that's Neo and Emerald. I don't think Mercury just gives a fuck, which we see him on more of the side of Salem rather than Cinder. We see Emerald trying to get her attention, but, like, Cinder just does not give a fuck about her, and he, she also just ignores her. But, you know, Emerald is just taking the shit anyways because she's having an identity crisis. And, oh, my God. <laughs> Neo? Neo in that shot just did not give a single fuck. She's like, oh, my God, this bitch again. She's back on our bullshit. Oh, my God. I've heard this before. We've seen this before. Like, nobody cares. Not a single soul asked for your dramatic, stupid telenovela bullshit on this goddamn show. Get out of here. Just It's just seeing Neo's face. She just doesn't care. She's so done with her shit. Like, it was already clear, like, at the beginning of the premiere. But just seeing that opening, she's just like, <sighs> fucking tired of this bitch. Which, again, it reaffirms to my point that I believe that she is definitely going to turn her back on Cinder at the right time. And we see that eventually Cinder is in pain with her grim arm again. So I feel like that's either going to take advantage out of her. Like, you know, it's going to, like, overtake her some way, somehow or one way or another. Or, I mean, again, Neo will be on some bullshit and, you know, she's going to be suffering in so much pain. <laughs> I can't wait to see what will be the outcome for Cinder in this volume. And it better be dead. But anywho. And finally, like, eventually, like, the next part that I believe that is worth mentioning is Team Ruby falling below the ground. And we see that they're losing sight of the Relic of Creation. And it looks like the grim arm that grabs Ruby, it looks, it really looks similar to Cinder's arm. So I don't know if Cinder's going after for her life again this time. And in the lyrics of the song, they said that some evil may never die and some wars never end in peace. So <laughs> I have a feeling like they'll get like this might actually end almost nearly as volume three. And I also believe that Salem might also get the Relic of Creation. I hope I'm wrong on that, though. But yeah, no, that kingdom is definitely falling onto mantle. A lot of people are going to die there. There are many directions that this series is definitely going to go to. So I just wonder which which devastating ones are going to be taken here but other than that like again the vol the volumes opening is just so beautiful i love it in every single way shape or form i'm just so i'm really excited for how this volume is going to turn out and i hope that it's better than volume seven for sure so and yeah that's all i really have to say for the new ruby volume eight premiere that's all my thoughts for what i think about the opening the premiere all of it so what are you guys' thoughts? If you guys have any thoughts of regarding with Ruby or maybe some theories and such, be sure to tag at StormConnectEN on Twitter. And again, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts onto this and to your guys' maybe your inputs onto what I believe is going to happen, my theories, and so on forward. 
That's all going to be for the podcast episode. If you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave out a five-star rating if you enjoyed this podcast. Hit up the Storm Connect Twitter at StormConnectEN or other platforms this podcast is on for feedback on the show. And of course, lastly, as always, we have merchandise available sponsored by King Styles Apparel. So be sure to check out the stylish t-shirts, hoodies, and more that I've created alongside with my collaborator, Schmurf. Be sure to follow him on Twitter as well. Other than that, this is Edo Ninja. Thank you all for your time for listening to this podcast episode. Stay safe, healthy, and for heaven's sake, stay smart as well. I'll see you guys on the next podcast episode. See ya.